0: Stand with me as we read from Psalm chapter 89. We already read the first 18 verses. That's kind of a a little preacher trick. If I want you to get something that I don't have time in the sermon to get to, I can throw a scripture reading at the beginning of the service and there you go. You get it. So, So a little bit of a preacher trick there. I want to focus in on verse 19 though, okay? So Psalm 89 verse 19, this is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. Pray with me. Father, this morning, I pray that your word would penetrate the depths of our hearts. Don't let it sit on the surface and get eaten by birds. Don't let it get into rocky soil and shoot up and then die in the heat of the sun. Don't let it get choked out by thorns and thistles. Uh, Make our hearts good soil so that when your word gets in, it is well-nourished, watered, growing, productive. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I have this picture of God in eternity past. It's probably, uh, if I close my eyes and try to picture it, it's black because I don't know how to represent nothing, okay? The best I can do is just black. And I can hear the voice of God speaking among himself. God, you'll remember, is three, yet one. Three distinct persons, yet one essence, one being. And so I can picture God the Father talking to God the Son and making this eternal decree from time immemorial I have chosen you. Now, I think for just a second about the words, I have chosen you. I choose you. When I was a kid, I was about as athletic as a lily pad, maybe. I used to say a toad, but those things get after it, so I had to change my analogy. I was about as athletic as a lily pad. I was not very athletic at all. I was kind of well-rounded, right? <laughs> I'm getting even more well rounded in my older age but but in my in my days of youth, I didn't have a whole lot of athletic skill. I wasn't strong, still not very strong, I wasn't fast, still not very fast. I wasn't smart athletically, though that kind of has shifted just a little bit, but not much. I was never really the athletic type, okay. So I was always the kid that was one of the last two or three to be picked for a team. My prayer was constantly, don't let me be last. Don't let me be the one that that the other guy got forced to take because nobody else wanted me. Okay? Don't let me be that guy. When I was in seventh grade, I tried out for the basketball team, and I didn't make it. I wasn't, excuse me, that was sixth grade. Sixth grade, I was trying out for the JV team, and I didn't make it. Apparently, I, I couldn't play basketball very well. I talked to someone. I said, you're lucky. You got on the team. He said, not really. All we do is pass it to this real, one guy who's really tall, and he gets all the points. Like that's our, that's our whole strategy. When I was in seventh grade, I played soccer. I made the team. They didn't reject anybody. They were just trying to get enough people to fill the team. In eighth grade, I didn't make a team. Ninth grade, I didn't even try anymore. I was just like, okay, that's not my thing. I'm just, I'll hang that up. So for someone to choose me meant one of two things. Either they were really desperate or they had no idea. For me to get chosen early in the process would have been astounding. I can think of what would I have done if somebody's first pick said, I want you, I would have been excited. I would have been thrilled. It would have been so comforting, so great for me. I think of God pointing to his Messiah, pointing to Jesus and saying, I choose you. I choose you to ransom humanity from the sin they're going to get in. At this point, there's no humanity. There's no earth. God hasn't even started with creation yet. Space and time are yet future. And yet God has already said from eternity past, I've chosen you, my son. You're the one who is going to redeem my creatures. You're the one who is going to make right their wrongs. You're the one who's going to glorify me by being God in human flesh and and represent people by being man with God's being before me. You are going to bridge the gap between a holy God and an unholy people. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how the Messiah hears those words. I have chosen you. And he chooses in a couple ways. Psalm 89 is focused on, uh, um, there's a couple of, of aspects here. The first 18 verses that we already read focus on God's power. Focus on God as supreme over the entire universe. They focus on his greatness, on his goodness, on his faithfulness, on his steadfast love. We see those themes just bubbling up all over the place. Like like a pot of water boiling on a hard boil and bubbles are just popping up everywhere. That's how we see these attributes of God in these first 18 verses. And when we get to 19, the author moves from God's power to his king. Now, he's speaking, thinking of David. But we all know David doesn't quite live up to these words. In fact, in just a minute, after we get through the middle section of the psalm, we're going to see what happened with David's line. But he says, I've chosen you. Not only has God chosen his Messiah, he's chosen his king on earth to represent him before his people, to represent his people before him. And that Messiah, well the Messiah is just the Davidic king par excellence. He is exactly who that Davidic king is supposed to be. He's the one that they all point forward to. And look at at how he's exalted in verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him. We picture this idea of anointing and that with anointing, you pour oil on the head and it drips down the head, comes down the sides and onto the clothes. I've told you before that that the king would wear those same garments in which he's anointed as he is ruling. And so that constant smell of that oil, that fragrance would permeate the king's clothes. So every time he wore them, it would remind him that he is the anointed one of God. Now that anointing, though, the, the secret's not in the oil. It's what it represents, Anointing is a sign. We we are just, we're poor, pitiful people. We need something physical. We need something we can see, something we can smell, something we can touch or taste or feel. We can't sense spiritual truths directly very often. So what we have to do is they have to come through our senses. God has to put it in a way that we can kind of grab a hold of it and say, oh, okay, now I understand And that's what anointing is. It's a a way for us to grab hold of the truth that God has poured out his spirit on his servant. And so I think back of, of the anointing. I think back to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Christ on the day of his baptism. He's going to be baptized. He comes to John and he tells John, I need you to baptize me. And John says, no, no, no. I need you to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, no, it must be this way. And so John dunks him under. And then in Matthew 3, 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We have this view of the Holy Spirit resting, not popping in for a brief visit. Some of you have family in town. Some of you are going to have family in town in the next couple of days. They're going to pop in. They'll stay for a couple of days. You'll eat way too much. Make sure you have elastic pants. Get you some stretchy pants and and you'll be okay. And then they'll go home. It's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes and he stays. He stays. He dwells. He abides. I have chosen you. This isn't I choose you right now, but a little bit later I'm gonna be tired of you, so I'm gonna go pick someone else. No, no, I've chosen you. John bore witness John 1 says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. He said, up until this point, I didn't know who he was. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He said, I knew because God told me when you see my Holy Spirit come down and settle and remain and abide and dwell, that's the one I'm sent. That's why John could look at Jesus coming and say, behold the Lamb of God. He had God's testimony. This is the exalted one. This is the Messiah. God's confirmed it by his own anointing the anointing of his Holy Spirit. Oh, and I see the power of God in this Messiah too. Look at verse 21 of Psalm 19, or Psalm 89, excuse me. Psalm 19 is another good Psalm. So that I found David my servant, with my holy oil I've anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him and my arm shall also strengthen with him. Strengthen him, excuse me. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not hum humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He, oh man, do you see the power here? Do you you see it? My hand establishes him. My arm upholds him. His enemies, they're not going to outsmart him. The wicked, they're not going to humble him. They're not going to bring him down. I will crush his foes, strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness, my steadfast love shall be with him. I have chosen you. When I think of the life of Christ, I think one of the words that comes to my mind is authority. Watch him. As he overturns tables in the temple. Watch him as he preaches magniloquent sermons. Watch him as he heals a blind man by taking some mud and putting it on the guy's eyes. Watch him as he comes into the house where a little girl has fallen asleep. And he raises her back to life. Or a Lazarus who's been dead now for four days. And he doesn't even have to walk in the tomb. He just calls out the guy's name and out he comes. Watch him as he teaches the masses, as he sends his disciples, as he loves children and bids them be brought to him. This is a man who lived with authority. He's cheating. He's God too. It's okay. I need a leader in this case. I need a fully God, fully man person. I need someone who is, is uniquely endowed with the divine nature and yet also has on human flesh that faces the same temptations I do and that withstands them with authority. Here is the exalted Messiah who preaches, who teaches, who lives, who heals, who saves with the authority of God. I have chosen you. Not only is he exalted, he's also loved. Look in verses 26 and 27. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's family. You see, this isn't just God has picked this person and you're going to be my friend. You're going to be my pal. You're going to be my buddy. No, no, you are my son. I've chosen you. Does the son make the choice what family he's born in? Any of us choose who our parents would be? Not, na- not natural parents. Now, some of us are in a... Maybe, maybe you have been or maybe you have uh, been a parent in this situation and, and you've experienced adoption. That's the exception in human terms. It's not the rule. But in divine terms, it is the rule. You see, God didn't just choose Messiah. No, 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 no. He, he chose you. And he chose you. And he chose you. And he chose you. He, he chose every single one of us to be his sons and daughters. First John 3, verse 1. See how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I've chosen you. And part of that family is to be in that relationship with God that is... There's, a, there's an older word, we don't use it a whole lot anymore, except kind of in church life we'll use it some, and it's the word covenant. See, covenant is kind of like, like our idea of a uh, treaty, but much more personal. When in ancient cultures they would sign covenants between nations... Sometimes they would do it literally by becoming family. One king would give his daughter to the other king as a wife. That's how Solomon got so many wives. Making treaties. Sometimes they would do it where the king's son would marry this other king's daughter. They would become family. It would start a relationship between these two entities that did not exist before So the idea of covenant is wrapped up in this idea of love. That's why the covenant love of God, the steadfast love, the chesed of God that is talked about so often in verses 1 through 18, bubbling forth in this this, uh, pot of boiling water that is the first 18 verses continues to bubble over here in verses 19 through 37. Listen to the covenant language. I will not, verse 34, violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once I fall, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. He won't lie to the Messiah. He won't lie to David. He ain't gonna lie to you either because God is not a man that he should lie Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne to the days of the heavens. And it doesn't matter that his offspring are going to do what's wrong. Verses 30 through 33 talk about the fact that, that, that The children are going to do wrong. They're going to forsake his law. They're going to turn away. But he's still not going to revoke his covenant. He's still going to make good on his promise to David. He's still going to make good by bringing forth that Messiah that David's line directs us to. And he's still going to make good on his promises for you. But sometimes that's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to see that God is going to make good. I I thought about this last week. We had something called a lunar eclipse anybody get to see it i didn't get to see it a couple of hands are like oh i got to it was almost a total eclipse wasn't it it was like there there's a, just like a little slither of the moon left that was not being eclipsed fully what happens in a lunar eclipse is is the earth gets between the sun and the moon and now the moon doesn't have a light okay it reflects the sun's light So the light of the sun bounces off the moon. That's what we see. It doesn't make its own light. But when it gets in the earth's shadow, it's blocked from the sun's light. So we don't see it. And sometimes that's what can happen. Sometimes we get in certain circumstances that put a shadow on what God is doing. And we don't see the reflection of his glory that we ought to. Because it's kind of shadowed by our circumstances. But, you know, I thought about another kind of eclipse. There's a solar eclipse. Works a little bit different. There's no shadow on the sun. It, how are you going to shadow a light source? That, that's, you know, that just doesn't happen, right? But a solar eclipse works differently. You see, sometimes, sometimes it's not the shadow of something that blocks the sun. It's, the, it's something else that blocks the sun, specifically our moon. In fact, this is how scientists find planets far, far away. They look at stars and they detect teeny tiny drops in the star's light, just a little bit. You'd never know it just looking at it. But they have finely tuned instruments that can detect those dips and they find those dips and they find that same dip at a regular interval over and over and over again and they can figure out there's a planet and it's this big and it's about this far away from that star and it's orbiting every so many days or every so often. That's how they find planets in other solar systems because it, it just, just a little bit. But sometimes with our sun and our moon, because of the distances, sometimes the moon will block out part of the sun and sometimes it blocks out so much of the sun that it's a total eclipse even in a total eclipse you still can't look at it you have to look through a little pinprick hole in something or specially designed glasses or something like that so that you don't go blind you see there's certain times where we get in the way of what God is doing and it doesn't matter that the moon is one four hundredth the size of the sun it doesn't matter that the diameter of the moon can fit in the sun 400 times that doesn't matter What matters is the moon is close enough to us that it blocks our view of the sun. Let me tell you something. There are some times where it ain't a shadow of a circumstance that's blocking our view. It is the moon of our sin that is so in front of our face that we can't see God's glory past it. It blocks our view of the sun,
1: it blocks our
0: view of everything that God is and what He's done. But now, verse 38, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. What made the change? It was the moon of sin that blocked the glory of God. There are times when our sins get in the way and we cannot see past them. What do we do when God's glory is being eclipsed by our sin? What do we do when it's our fault that we cannot see the fullness of God? There's only one thing we can do. Actually, two things, but they're two sides of the same coin one is that we need to admit our shortcomings look in verse 46 by the way it's an interesting thing in verse 19 he says of old you spoke this has been determined from before the foundation of the world then in verse 38 it says but now suddenly this has changed and now in verse uh, verse 46 he asks how long how long is it going to be like this how long O lord how long, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created, all oh, the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? This guy has to come to a place where he says, God, I don't. I can't do this. If it's our sin that's eclipsing God's glory, we need to admit that sin. If it's our sin that's getting in the way from us seeing who God is, then that sin's got to go. He stops here. That's what Selah is. It's a pause, because he's overly, utterly broken. We need to admit. We need to confess. Slay it all out. He knows it anyway. He sees it better than we do. And then we need to trust him. Verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old? By which your faithfulness, which by your faithfulness you swore to David. God, God, where is that steadfast love that we need? You promised it to David. And you have been faithful. I need that. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. God, God, look at what I'm going through. I need you. With your enemies, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, and with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. We, we've we got to get rid of our sins, but we've also got to trust in his faithfulness. Because that solar eclipse, even though the moon blocks out the majority of the sun, there's still a ring around that moon. So bright you can't even look at it. You see, God's glory is still shining through. In spite of your sin, in spite of your wickedness, in spite of the things that you have done against him, God's glory is still shining all around that. And so when we see the solar eclipse, the the sun being eclipsed by the weight of our sin, we need to confess that sin and we need to look for God's faithfulness around it because we'll find that God is just as faithful. The sun doesn't stop shining because something's in the way. In fact, you can see the sun in a whole new way when there's something in the way. You know how scientists study the earth, the sun's surface? There's two ways they do it. Number one, there's a satellite in space that has a giant spot on the sun. You think, well, they're studying the sun. Yeah, you got to block out most of the light. What they're looking for with that satellite is what's happening just off the surface. Those those ejections of energy that are coming off, that are producing solar radiation sending out throughout the solar system. It allows them to focus on those things. The other way they study it is during the total solar eclipse. So when they get their instruments out, they will travel thousands of miles if they have to to get to a place where you can see the total eclipse. And they'll start taking measurements. They'll start making observations. They'll look, what can I see now? Now that the vast light of the sun is diminished, what can I see in what's left? It's time for us as a people to stop complaining about how dark it is during the eclipse and to start finding God's glory around it because this is the same God who said to his Messiah in times of old, I have chosen you and he's chosen us too. And he's not only chosen us to know Messiah, but to experience his fullness. John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Ephesians 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I don't understand how he chose us. I don't care. I just know that he chose me. He's chosen you too. Colossians 2 says in him in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells bodily and then it continues and you have been given fullness so what does that mean what does it mean that God has said not only I've chosen you my son but he's also said I've chosen you too what does that mean well it means something corporately right we find our identity as being the chosen ones of Jesus Christ We are not just a group of people who come to church on Sunday. We are the body of Christ. We don't find our identity in our jobs. We don't find our identity in our family. We don't find our identity in our school. We don't find our identity in our our ministries. I am not a person who is a preacher of Jesus and that's my identity. I am a child of God. You are not an owner of a lawnscaping business. You are a child of God. You are not a retired bum. (laughs) Though you might feel like it sometimes. Or an almost retired bum. Yeah. Yeah. You are a child of God. You are not a middle school student. You are a child of God. Or high school student. You are not someone who's just moved to the area, you are a child of God. You are not mother or father to so-and-so, son or daughter of so-and-so. You're a son or daughter of God. So don't you think you ought to look a little bit like him? Let's go back to the schoolyard. When I did get picked, not last. May have been second to last, but hey, that's not last, right? I'm not the last one there. It made me want to do better. I wasn't very good at it. Basketball or flag football or whatever the game would be. I wasn't very good at it. Every now and then I'd make a decent play. Every now and then I might do something pretty good. Every now and then I might hit a shot. But I still tried harder. I think if God's going to choose us, it ought to give us the incentive to try a little bit harder. Maybe not, maybe not just run ourselves ragged, but just, Lord, can can I can I serve you better in one way today? Can I speak to one person that I wouldn't have spoken to normally? Can I can I spend just a little bit more time focused on you and less on the junk that surrounds me? Lord, can I remember to be thankful for this Massive amount of food I'm about to eat. God, can I see in this person? Can I see in them what you see and love them for who they are in you? I just think if God chooses us, maybe we can just go one more step to make ourselves worth choosing. Paul puts it this way make your calling and election short. It's not that you firm it up because God hasn't done enough and it's on shaky ground. No, it's that you already know you're called. You already know God has chosen you. Live in light of it. For you, that may look in different ways. I, I've tried to give some ideas. Hopefully, they've spurred your thinking and, and you can see areas in your life where you need to commit to God. So this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. You know, when mama tells you something, you say, yes, ma'am, you do it. Now, God's speaking to you. Let this be our time to say, yes, sir. He's chosen as Messiah from before the foundation of the world, and he's chosen us too. And since he's chosen us, we have access to his fullness. Let's live in light of it. Pray with me. Father, this is your time. You do your will. Whether your will is for someone who doesn't know you to say, you know, you you keep talking about being a child of God, but I'm not one. Father, it might be time for them to say, Lord, make me your child. It might be time for them to confess sin and ask Jesus to be their Savior. If that's the case for anybody here, I pray that right now you would move in their heart that they would respond in obedience. Father, it might be that all of us are saved here, but, but we need to follow you better. Maybe maybe some of us are hearing the call to join your church here, to be part of a body who is seeking to honor you with every bit of our lives. Father, it might be that somebody just needs to, just needs to commit their life to you in a more permanent way. Maybe, Maybe we've accepted Christ, but we're not living like it. We're not connecting the dots. We're not taking what you've done and moving in your will father i pray now we would we would i pray that all the excuses would fall away all the doubts would be calmed and that even even if we're eclipsing your glory with our own sin your glory would burst around the edges, that you would shine forth, your light, into the depths of our souls, and we may know you, that we may love you. This is your time, you do your will, in Christ's name, amen.